0: Into this line of work you have to know and accept that you will be doing things that you would not ordinarily do. But the way we rationalized that, the way my wife rationalized it, the way I rationalized it, the front end, was that all right we will do those things. Lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, coerce, because we sincerely believe we're doing those things for a greater good and we believe that that makes them morally justifiable. Spying is ancient, It's biblical. And where would we be without intelligence? I shudder to think about America's safety in the long run if we had not had good intelligence. And how do you get intelligence? Through deception.
1: There are few more mythologized posts in all of espionage. Chief of counterintelligence for the CIA. This week's guest, James Olsen, reached that position towards the end of a 30-year career with the agency. Much of it served alongside his wife Meredith, also a CIA officer, in Paris, Moscow, Vienna and Mexico City. Olson was later asked by former US President George H.W. Bush, himself a former CIA director, to teach counterintelligence at the Bush School at Texas A&M University. James Olson is the author of Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. I'm Andrew Miller, and I spoke to James Olson on the Big Interview. James Olson, welcome to the Big Interview. First of all, I want to start actually at the start. If you could tell our listeners how and when you first joined the CIA. It's a bit of an unusual story because I was
0: not expecting that kind of a career at all. I had graduated from university, then I went into the United States Navy. I served for four years aboard Guided missile Destroyers and Frigates. I wanted to go back home to my state of Iowa, so I applied for law school as I left the Navy. I was accepted, and my dream was to be a small town lawyer out in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. And I was on track for that dream, But in my last year of law school, I received a mysterious phone call out of the blue, Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity, that might be of interest to you. So I had somehow been spotted by the CIA, and that was the beginning of a lengthy process of secret trips to Washington and meetings in safe houses, lots of testing, background investigations, polygraph exams, the whole works. I somehow survived that and was offered a position what we call the clandestine service, the Directorate of Operations. And that was the beginning of a 31-year undercover career with the CIA.
1: During that process, especially since you hadn't gone looking for that career, did you have any reservations at any point? Were there stages during that at which you decided, actually, the small-town lawyer thing is looking pretty good to me right now?
0: No, I'd gotten the bug of uh, service to country, I think, in the Navy. And I thought that this was a great opportunity for me to continue service of some kind. So once the offer came through, I had no reservations whatsoever.
1: One of the books you've written uh, about your time in the service is called Fair Play, which looks at the moral dilemmas of spying. And that's what I was particularly interested in asking you about. And first of all, as a, as a general concept, do you think those moral dilemmas are pretty much now what they were when you were serving all the way back to antiquity.
0: Well, some of that is true. Uh, Spying has uh, a lot of moral implications, but I think it's uh, more difficult now from a moral standpoint, particularly since uh, 9-11. Americans have many questions tonight. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organizations known as al-Qaeda. This group and its leader, a person named Osama bin Laden, are linked to many other organizations in different countries. There are thousands of these terrorists in more than 60 countries. They are recruited from their own nations and neighborhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan, where they are trained in the tactics of terror. They're sent back to their homes or sent to hide in countries around the world to plot evil and destruction. With 9-11 and our war against terrorism, we had to contemplate some procedures, some tradecraft that we had not customarily used in the past. It's a dirty war out there and uh, we're fighting an evil adversary. And we can't go out there with our hands tied behind our back like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and expect to prevail against that kind of enemy. So things like targeted killings and things like waterboarding, things like renditions or kidnappings uh, came into play. And so I think that that really accentuated the need for a, a good solid dialogue on how far we can go. We know we're gonna have to get our hands dirty to some point. But the question that I wanted to frame in fair play was, how far is too far? When do we lose the values that make us who we are? When, in effect, do we become them? And that's, uh, I think, a, a step too far.
1: I guess I can see the dilemma there, the idea that perhaps you're at a disadvantage if you are uh, more concerned with ethics than your rivals, versus the idea that perhaps taking a higher ethical ground is actually an advantage which can be leveraged. Is that basically the balance?
0: Yeah, I think that is the balance. We're facing adversaries who have no moral constraints whatsoever. Their goal is to kill as many Americans as they can wherever they can find us. So the temptation is very strong to say, all right, well, we'll fight back in exactly the same way with no moral constraints. But that's not who we are. And I'm proud to say that we do have uh, moral limitations in how our intelligence services operate. I believe that we're perhaps the most moral major intelligence service in the world because we do have limitations on how far we will go.
1: But when you make a judgment about whether the United States uh, has overstepped the mark in any respect, do, do you make that judgment entirely on ethical grounds or entirely on the grounds of effectiveness? I guess this is an ends versus means question. If you're presented with something you know, some notional course of action, which may well get results, but may also be the sort of thing that Americans don't like to think of themselves as the kind of people who would do this. And I'm sure I could have phrased that more gracefully. But what do you do at that point?
0: Well, there are some things that just don't make any sense operationally. And so we could veto a proposed operational initiative on those grounds. But we're very much focused on the fact of legality and then beyond legality and morality because those things are not synonymous. Mm. And so we do look at uh, what kind of moral tone we're going to have in our operations. And we will not do certain things because they go too far. One good example is uh, sex. Every major intelligence service in the world that I'm aware of uses sex in its operations, Mm. entrapment, uh, seduction, and we on moral grounds have decided not to do that. Now, we've violated that in the past uh, in a few limited occasions. But as a matter of moral policy, we will not use sex in our operations today. And that's not because it doesn't work, because it does work. Every other country uh, has made effective use of that, including against us. Mm. But we have chosen not to do it. And I think that's uh, solely on moral grounds.
1: But in your long career in the field, do you recall specific instances personally of wondering if you were doing the right thing, if something you'd been told to do was whether or not it was actually going to be effective was not something you, you could square with your own ethical outlook?
0: Yes, twice. OK. There were things that we were involved in that I had strong moral reservations about. I don't wanna be too specific, but in both of those cases, I went to my superiors and said, I have religious and ethical objections to what this course of action is. And in both cases, my superiors allowed me to recuse myself from the operation. And I respected the agency for that because the CIA, I believe, did not want to force me to do things that I would find morally repugnant. Now, you can't make that call very often. When you go into this line of work, you have to know and accept that you will be doing things that you would not ordinarily do. But the way we rationalized that, the way my wife rationalized it, the way I rationalized it to the front end was that all right, we will do those things: lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, coerce because we sincerely believe we're doing those things for a greater good. And we believe that that makes them morally justifiable. Spying is ancient. It's biblical, and where would we be without intelligence? I shudder to think about America's safety in the long run if we had not had good intelligence. And how do you get intelligence? Through deception, through manipulation, through coercion, through all those things that I was talking about. And so we have to accept that we will do those things. So we uh, we sign on to that. We have no qualms about it. We still sleep well at night. But uh, we realized that we are, in fact, doing things that in the abstract, as good moral people, we would not be doing. We do them and have no second thoughts, except for those two incidents that I I mentioned. In those cases, I could not uh, go that far.
1: To return to the example you mentioned, especially those, that immediate post 9-11 period where the United States did use techniques, including, as you said, there was the renditions, there was the, the waterboarding, there were various other things which have been well documented. Do you think looking back, though, that all of those actually did any good in terms of protecting American lives and protecting American interests? And if they did, is it possible to make a judgment as to how much that good might have been outweighed by the harm done to America's reputation?
0: That's a difficult calculus, isn't it? Mm. Uh, we do have to make those calls. I don't want to sound like an ogre, but I believe that some of the things that we did in a post-9-11 world... Uh, were morally justifiable because of the nature of the threat because of the need to protect american lives the day after if i recall correctly 9 11 vice president dick cheney came out to cia headquarters and he said to the assembled senior leadership of the cia's director of operations this is war this is america's new pearl harbor And you, CIA, are going to be on the front lines of that war. And that means that we're going to be asking you to do things that you had not traditionally done because of the nature of this threat. And some of those things are nasty. Mm. Things like renditions, things like waterboarding, things like targeted killings. But we signed on as an agency, and I believe that we served our country well by keeping us safe. I believe that some of those techniques did, in fact, save American lives by extracting information from terrorists that allowed us to thwart future attacks. I'm convinced of that.
1: What's your sense now of how different the craft of counterintelligence is, as opposed to when you were chief of counterintelligence? There is obviously now so much more information available to literally anybody with a laptop and a phone that would have been available to undercover operatives in the time you were serving. How has that made the job different?
0: It's a whole new world. It's much more complex. It's much more difficult to be a counterintelligence officer today. First of all, because of the magnitude of the threat. What the Chinese are doing against the United States, against all of the Western world, is unprecedented. It's massive, it's pervasive, and it has placed demands on US counterintelligence that we'd never seen before. It's very sophisticated. They're coming at us from many different directions. And the Chinese are not alone because the Russians have not gone away. Their level of espionage in the United States is as high or higher than it ever was during the Cold War. And many other countries also are trying to steal our technology, our secrets, get into our databases. But for counterintelligence professionals like me, China stands alone. Mm. It is the national security threat long-term the United States. And we need to, to do a lot more than we're doing now. That's the reason I wrote uh, To Catch a Spy, because I believe that America is under assault. I believe the Western world is under assault. And we are not taking that threat seriously enough. We need to upgrade tremendously our counterintelligence responses uh, to China in the first instance, but to other countries as well.
1: The corollary to that question, I guess, and or at least a furtherance of the question about the amount of information now generally available is uh, how much is left now for the professionals such as yourself still to find out? Are there really things of earth shattering significance which are not widely known?
0: You bet there are. (laughs) You bet there are. I'm a big advocate of human intelligence. Go figure. That was my career. But there's nothing like a human spy. There are things that aren't available in any other means than having a penetration of a foreign government, of a terrorist organization, a narcotics trafficking organization. We need human spies. They will give us the keys to what is actually gonna go on. So I'm not worried about being supplanted by technical means. Human intelligence is alive and well and always will be. Uh, Human spies are the bread and butter of what we have done and uh, will be for the foreseeable future.
1: You think there's still value in having somebody in the field under an assumed identity to the extent that that's still possible?
0: Absolutely. We need undercover spies. We need spies with a whole variety of covers. I think more now than ever, because our people under official covers are marked, of course, Mm. and are watched closely. So we need to insert people under some very ingenious covers to get access to the, the new operating environment. Going after terrorists is not easy. They're not gonna talk to somebody from the United States Embassy in a foreign country. So we've gotta have people who can get into those uh, uh, target groups uh, without uh, raising uh, uh, too much suspicion.
1: I just want to ask finally about what it's like, especially after a a long career as a covert operative, re-entering normal life, as it were. Did you find it difficult? And do you think the agency uh, has got better at looking after people who've been professionally obliged to live double lives? I mean, obviously, one of your predecessors as counterintelligence chief, James Jesus Angleton, looms as kind of a, a cautionary tale in letting people stay too long in that role?
0: Coming out was traumatic. It's the most difficult decision I think my wife had ever had to make. Our plan originally was to retire undercover. As many of our colleagues do, it was easier. It would be safer. You would not have to reveal to family and friends that you've been lying to them all those years. She'd been living a double life. But the honor of being asked by President Bush to set up an intelligence studies program and his school of government at Texas A&M, the Bush School of Government Public Service, was so great that we decided that we would accept the consequences of coming out from undercover. We had to, by regulation. Also, just as a practical matter, I couldn't go to a university and teach courses on intelligence without revealing I've got some background in that area. So uh, we had to come out. It was a long, long time before I could even comfortably say those three words, those three words, those initials, CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. It was hard to say that because for my entire professional life, uh, we were undercover. Our families didn't know, our parents didn't know, our children didn't know, our friends didn't know. So coming out was very, very difficult. We had some hard conversation with family and friends. But we don't regret it because the rewards of... Working with young people and preparing them for their careers of service to our country as an intelligence officer is uh, indescribably uh, gratifying. I love what I'm doing here, uh, sending uh, lots of really fine, patriotic young men and women into the James Olson. Thank you very much the for the joining States. me on the big interview. Frontline twenty-four? We probably need those people now more than ever. Intelligence is absolutely vital in the multi-threaded environment that we face. So I really feel that's it I'm for this edition of the big interview. The big interview is produced by Emma really
1: from me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.